This is the Journalism Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James Cates. Our guest today is Allison Novak. She's on the faculty at Rowan University in New Jersey, and she's written a new book called Media, Millennials, and Politics, The Coming of Age of the Next Political Generation. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am uh, uh, curious how you've gotten into this. Uh, uh, You're, I assume, a a member of the millennial generation yourself. And uh, how did you come to study this uh, particular phenomenon of, of, of millennial generation members, politics, and media together? Sure. Um, well, I started in 2008, and I was volunteering in the Obama campaign, and I was um, helping them find volunteers to work in the Hudson Valley area of New York. And one of the things that kept happening was, as we were volunteering with a group of the millennials, um, people would come up to us and say, you know, it's really good to see millennials involved, and they're just usually so apathetic and disengaged, and they don't really care about politics. And meanwhile, we were having this kind of cool experience where all these young people were really involved, and they were really, like, leading the show, so to speak, in the area. And so I just kept having these experiences that made me wonder, you know, where is this negative reputation coming from? Certainly not coming from millennial practices, not coming from the actual people who are involved with politics. So when I went to grad school, I kind of wanted to explore that question further of how do we get these bad reputations for the millennial generation if it's not necessarily indicative of what they're actually doing. And the reason that I was able to focus on um, was that a lot of it has to do with the media coverage they're getting. Journalists in particular have been really negative towards the millennial generation for a number of reasons. Um, and sort of the way they frame the millennials has impacted the way the public see millennials. And also the way millennials see themselves. I want to uh, uh, to congratulate you on your your topic of your research because I think it was was very auspicious in terms of timing. <laughs> you've you've hit kind of a, upon sort of a perfect storm here because you 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 mentioned you started it in in two thousand eight the the election of Barack Obama, and then uh, you go through the midterms the the reelection of Obama in twenty twelve, and then through the midterms of twenty fourteen. And yet, at the same time, we have this this millennial wave sort of washing on the shores of American politics. We also have a crisis in the media in terms of the media funding models, media very much in disarray. Uh, people think, of course, of newspapers, but television as well. You know, the audience becoming fragmented, the 24-7 news cycle for good and definitely for ill in many ways. And so this is a crazy time for both millennials and and the media, and then you put on top of that the the economic uh, uh, troubles we have had with the Great Recession starting about two thousand seven oh eight, the 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 gradual but sluggish economic recovery. People in your generation have a lot of a lot on their minds: uh, student loan debt, um, you know, the possibility of underemployment. Uh, long-term prospects. So this is, it seems to me, a, a very, very timely topic. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, sort of millennials are coming of age into the political system and are becoming eligible to vote at this kind of amazing moment when there's all these other things happening that really we've never seen before. So I think you said, you know, the, the media economic models have been completely challenged by the presence and the popularity of digital media. And one of the things that really challenges journalists is they feel very strongly that the millennials are responsible for the popularization of digital.
digital new technologies. And as a result, that's what's cutting into their economic models, their profits, their ability to, to do their own work. So you kind of see a lot of blame that happens um, that millennials are taking at the same time as they are becoming eligible to vote. And I think the, the other thing that's so unique about millennials is that they are so large. We've never had a generation that is this big. And so the potential for them to impact kind of every facet of life is, is just so much greater than what we've seen before. Even the baby boomers, who were previously our largest generation, I mean, they don't even compare in size to how big millennials are. 50 million people, by your count? Yes, yes, yeah. about 50 million. Now, you, talk, you, you began by talking about cable television, and, of course, cable is, uh, you speak of a fractured media environment. There are cable channels that, that cater to those who are really, really into politics, and then there are those that come at politics as a form of humor, uh, yeah. things like the, the, the Daily Show, uh, the Colbert Report, things of that sort. And yet you see sort of a marginalization of this enormous millennial generation in cable. Uh, uh, sometimes they're the target of jokes. You mentioned sometimes they're, they're sort of lumped in with this. You know, we, we, I heard it just this morning on cable. They're talking about the Obama coalition, uh, Hispanics, African-Americans, young people. It, it always seems to be this sort of uh, agglomeration of, of certain groups. And then, of course, you mentioned as well that there's some people who say, Millennials are only in it for the free stuff. They vote if if someone says, "I'll forgive your student loans," or "I will, uh, I'll give you goodies and tax breaks and such." And so, you can see where millennials might feel they're even though they're a huge part of the audience for so much of this stuff, they feel maybe a little bit slighted. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, in the 2012 election, I watched about 220 hours of cable television news, and I watched on a number of different networks. You have my sympathies. <laughs> the, um, the they only used millennials or like the name of the millennial generation eight times in that amount of hours. Yet they talked about them constantly. So they were using these very derogatory names for the generation. They called them entitled. They called them Generation Me. They talked about them being digitally reliant. I mean, these these were not like positive terms of reference that were used for them. So when you're you're a millennial and you're watching this, you know, you have two possible reactions. The first is you either look at that and you say, well, no way, I'm not going to pay attention to this anymore, and I'm going to go find media that's going to talk about me in a better way. Or you have people who then have negative self-esteem because of the way they keep being represented in these cable news networks. And for millennials, the first option, which is just to leave those sort of media outlets and instead find digital ones that are more favorable, that's kind of been the trend that they've taken on instead. And you, uh, I remember one term that really stuck with me from the book was uh, they had talked about people in uh, surveys of religious preference who, who mark, you know, none. And then they yes. began referring to them as the nuns, which does <laughs> not seem to me a particularly, you know, complimentary uh, title. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we think about all the names we have for the generation, and really millennial is the only sort of neutral term that doesn't imply inferior status or something negative about the group. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I use it, even though we could call them Generation Y, or we could call them the Young Nuns, or we could call them the Digital Natives. This is the term that doesn't come with like a loaded canister of meanings behind it, even though obviously it can be interpreted in a number of ways. 
And just to clarify, from from your point of view, we're talking about people born after 1980. Is that right? Yeah, it's usually 1981 to uh, 2001. The 1980s is um, kind of a gray area. Sometimes we call that a fourth turning period. Um, so it's a, a period of years where people can kind of identify as either a Gen X or a millennial based on how they feel. There's no real cutoff. But we see the 2001 as a clear cutoff um, as 9-11. So we can see that the generation kind of has two different extremes to it. And as far as online news, there's a a vast trove of online news out there, and it's it's expanding by the day, and there's a lot of stuff. It's ephemeral. It comes and it goes. It's not stored in a library. So this presented some difficulties for you in terms of your methodology, can you explain how you go about getting a sample? You say, okay, let's look at online news over a certain period. You are looking at material that has been shared. Is that right? Yes, yeah. I use um, a platform called NewsWhip. It's actually designed for journalists, but they were really gracious to let me use it. Um, and it, what it does is it's looking for the most shared um, news stories by certain groups, by certain demographics um, on any given day or any given moment when you choose to collect so I was looking for these stories that millennials were sharing with the rest of the world, the things that they were picking out as important, because there is so much digital media. I mean, I could spend, you know, the rest of my life looking at all the different digital forms of um, coverage during 2008 or 2012 elections. So this was a way which I could focus on things that other people were telling me were important versus me trying to make that call on my own. And just to clarify for, for our listeners, you were doing a lot of this work as a doctoral student at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Uh, you consider yourself sort of a, a media analyst, a social scientist by approach, in, in, particularly in terms of your, your methodology, your, your worldview. How do you come at this? Yeah, well, I think, you know, first and foremost, I see myself as kind of an interdisciplinary scholar, so it allows you to pull theories and research and concepts from a number of fields, which I think, especially when we're talking about something that's kind of as blended as political media, it helps to have a lot of theories at your arsenal. Um, but I do see myself as a social scientist. I was, you know, trained in communications, and now I work in a public relations department, which kind of allows me to pursue the more strategic side of it. So looking at, you know, which one of these messages is really having the impact or the effect on the generation versus what largely is happening as a descriptive factor. Mm-hmm. I see when, when you're talking specifically about discourse analysis, the work of Stuart Hall is prominently mentioned. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on, on his role, your reading of his work, and, and how that influenced your own work? Absolutely. I mean, Stuart Hall's work has been so foundational. Um, his main idea behind the theories of representation are that the media interpret certain groups for certain actions, and then they represent them in the media. And in the process of representing them, they're making choices about what to call them, what images to use, what quote to pick. Um, and so as they're doing that, they're sort of presenting almost like a frame of that group or a very specific snapshot of them. And because they have to make those choices and because the audience only gets to see the product of the choice, not all of the other things that they could have selected from, all of a sudden we have a very specific worldview of a, of a group. Now the, the challenge to that comes with sometimes groups challenge the representation in mass culture. And that's kind of one of the things that I tried to expand on from Stuart Hall's work is millennials 
because they voted in such amazing numbers in all four of the elections compared to the other demographic groups, they were challenging their own representation in these cable news uh, channels in particular. And so cable news industry then has to go back and say, well, something went wrong. And a lot of times they did. They actually, they, you know, talked after the election and said, you know, we didn't see the millennial generation coming, even though I think if they'd been paying a little bit closer attention, they probably would have seen some of the faults with their, their polling numbers. But the idea was that all of a sudden the group had challenged the representation, the negative representation they had, and the media kind of had to scramble to find a new narrative of how millennials are participating in politics. So the the representations you see online were 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 somewhat better than the cable. You do mention that the the millennials, when they engage with political news, they're more likely to be doing this online than they are to be watching a cable news show like, say, uh, Chris Matthews or uh, uh, Sean Hannity. Uh, what did you find in that, that online universe? How did you narrow it down? What are some of the takeaways from that? Sure. Uh, well, first, online news was just tremendously more supportive of millennials, especially before the election. So a lot of times cable news would focus on sort of the poll outcomes that said millennials aren't going to vote. But in reality, we know millennials generally don't poll very well. So no matter what, they weren't going to have very good data to work off of. And versus the online system, they were going into this saying millennials are going to participate and here's how they're going to do it. So they were giving them almost a little bit more agency in the online media versus the traditional cable media. And I think the other big takeaway that I had from it was there really were sort of four dominant sources of news from millennials. I mean, just like they were getting majority of their news from the Huffington Post, from BuzzFeed, from Fox News, and from MSNBC.com. And those were the four places that just routinely every single day had a number of most popular articles. And I think that when we look at those four sources, those are four sources that are actually identifying the millennial generation that are calling them by name. They even have sections of their website dedicated to them. I mean, BuzzFeed, in their mission statement, notes that it is designed for millennials, that it's designed for the youth of America. Um, so I think looking at those four different publications online and knowing that they are specifically addressing millennials, it's kind of something like cable news. If they wanted to get back in the graces of millennials or wanted to get their attention again, probably could adopt that practice. We're speaking with Allison Novak. She is the author of Media, Millennials, and Politics, The Coming of Age of the Next Political Generation. It's published by Lexington Books. You know, one thing you, you mention in your book that I found interesting is to say millennials are not necessarily turned off. In fact, they, they seem to uh, quite readily accept the idea that newsmakers will have a point of view, if not, I guess we've, we we wouldn't call it outright bias, but a point of view. They understand that MSNBC is going to give them a story differently, for example, than Fox News would. And they're not necessarily bothered by that. What they are bothered by is, is the noise, maybe something that bothers all of us, the noise, the junk, the sensationalism, the, the headline grabbing that seems to be forced on the media by this phenomenon of the 24-7 news cycle. Absolutely. I mean, millennials are, when we compare them to other groups, incredibly media literate. They have a really in-depth insight into all the pressures that go into journalism today. They understand that there's time pressures. They understand that they can't show everything on the news. They understand that everybody's trying to scramble to get everything out there immediately so you're the first one with the story. And when you think about that, that's 
kind of a really insightful approach to media, to not just sit there and judge the message, but to judge the process of it. And millennials are not only capable of that, but usually how they're processing it. I think the challenge that comes with it, though, is that even though they understand all those difficulties, it kind of makes it more frustrating for them because they look at this and they say, but it could be better and it should be better. So they understand the weaknesses and they can identify them, but they don't necessarily accept them for just kind of being the way it is. And we see other generations tend to just kind of accept it and move on, whereas millennials seek to challenge that. And one of the reasons why they turn online is because they think some of those challenges that happen in the, the television space don't happen in the online space. I, I notice as well, you, you mentioned that a, a lot of millennials, they approve of the work they see from NPR. And NPR, NPR of course, is, is no longer technically national public radio. It's just NPR because they, they stream, they podcast, they write news online, they do slideshows. It's, it's, it's a true multimedia platform probably the closest thing we have in the United States. And to NPR, they, they attribute, well, I guess maybe it's because it's non-commercial. It's a little slower. It's a little more thoughtful. It takes more time, and it doesn't feel the need to, to grab every click out there, which maybe makes it a kind of a breath of fresh air in terms of the news run for the day. Absolutely. I mean, and that was one of the things when I was doing this research I was the most shocked by. When I asked, you know, where is it that you feel you could go for news coverage of politics that would be accurate, or at least closer to accurate, almost uniformly people were telling me NPR, PBS, and then they were even listing international channels. Al Jazeera came up quite a few times, The Guardian. And that's, you know, a really wide world view of media. We sometimes think millennials are, you know, constantly on BuzzFeed or on Twitchy or Elite Daily. But in reality, they're actually identifying these platforms that you're right, they see as being less commercial and therefore a little bit easier, a little bit more clear with their coverage. You mentioned, uh, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on this, because I, I was intrigued by this idea, the difference between political and civic engagement. And you talk about the millennials as being highly civically engaged, which is not always equated with political involvement. How does that work? Absolutely. So civic involvement is focused on giving back to the community, working with others to solve community problems, volunteering, fundraising. It's kind of the, the more general forms of engagement that don't necessarily have to do with elections, although they certainly can lend themselves to those practices. Traditional political engagement almost entirely focuses on voting. And this is one of the challenges that happens with millennials is that when people say, you know, oh, they don't vote, even though we know they do, they sort of equate that with them being disengaged across the board. But that's not true. They're really civically involved. But is it true they don't show up a lot of times to vote? Absolutely. So we sometimes see the reputation of being politically disengaged almost overshadow their really intense levels of civic engagement. And I should also point out that the, the high levels of civic engagement, that's not just in America, that's really around the world, that we're seeing sort of increase in uh, civic participation and volunteerism almost globally at this moment from the youth of America, or I'm sorry, the youth of the world. So it's kind of an interesting challenge because we like to report on political engagement, and yet civic engagement is sort of the longer, more long-term view of how to be involved in politics. It's harder to measure, too. Absolutely. <laughs> We're talking with Allison Novak. She is the author of Media, Millennials, and Politics, 
The Coming of Age of the Next Political Generation. It's published by Lexington Books. Here's here's the tough part. We're, we're speaking now, I believe it's four days before the election of 2016. And, you know, we look at, I guess, what Cable calls the youth vote, the Obama coalition, <laughs> all, all the labels one might apply. Now we ask, what next? After after the age of Barack Obama, into the age, I know there are a lot of, of confused, even angry people out there, uh, a lot of people, you know, maybe who had, uh, they talk about a wave of young voters supporting Bernie Sanders, where they don't have that choice anymore. Now they may not be so excited about the alternatives. Uh, young people who would be on the conservative side of the spectrum certainly would be divided and confused and sometimes angry as well. Uh, this, of course, bodes well for you. You, you get a, a, a really interesting research agenda out of this 2016 race, and I assume you're going to do something with it. But what do you make of it at this point? Sure. I mean, it's kind of been a really fascinating election to watch because all of a sudden millennials are the largest portion of our voting population. This is kind of the turning point. This is the year where more millennials are going to be able to vote than any other generation. Obviously, they were aging into adulthood before. And so to see sort of this really complex view of them play out, um, whether it's the Bernie Bros or the Bernie or Bust, Bust movement, or the conservative millennials who are struggling, especially if they have religious um, backgrounds, to understand how to support um, their conservative politician versus the Democratic one. So it's been kind of a really like fun period of time to study. I'll give you kind of an anecdotal piece. Um, this summer I was working um, at the DNC here in Philadelphia, and there was one day where there was the Black Lives Matter protest on one block. Next to it, it was Bernie or Bust protest. And on the following block, block it was the Donald Trump protest. <laughs> and to see kind of three spectrums of millennials protesting outside the DNC was really amazing because this, again, is a group that we usually talk about as being so disengaged and so apathetic. And yet here they were on sort of this huge stage trying to... to manage this major election and have their voices heard. Isn't it true as well that in any generation, I mean, there are people who are engaged politically and there and there are people who are not. I, I know I, I teach journalism. I always tell my students, yes, it's true that 50 years ago, nearly every household got a newspaper, but many people were getting the newspaper for the, the comic strips and the sports pages, it doesn't mean everyone was politically engaged. We looked at a, a, a graphic of voter turnout the other day, and I'm looking, for example, at the historic election of 1948. Uh, Harry Truman and Thomas E. Dewey, and turnout barely over half the, uh, the, the adults eligible. And so this is something that really has not changed all that much, and I guess it, it again maybe points to the, the dangers of pigeonholing the millennials and saying, well, they're apathetic or they're not apathetic. Some are involved and some are not. And that is a, a phenomenon that's always been with us. Definitely. Um, there's kind of there's a, a great book called The Way We Never Were, which I think speaks to a lot of the, the issues that face millennials right now, is that there's so many times that we look back and we say, oh, things were definitely better in the past. Um, but that's not necessarily true, and especially for generations. I mean, there have been other generations that have been labeled as really disengaged or really apathetic, 
but in, in general terms, we look back and we see them as being like the sort of beacon of political engagement. And today we compare ourselves to it and we say, that's not necessarily the way things are. And the truth is, the way we're remembering it, the nostalgia of it, is what's complicating our perception of today. We are constantly comparing millennials to this thing that didn't exist, to this you know past way of life that was not actually a way of life. So that makes it hard for millennials to overcome this because they're kind of fighting against this ghost that doesn't really exist. Going forward, let's say you get a call tomorrow from MSNBC or CNN or Fox News, and they ask you, they say, we want to right the wrongs. We want to provide a more well-rounded, nuanced, fuller picture of this. Uh, And they ask for your help. You come in as a consultant. What do you say? Where do we go from here? What makes it better? Well, I think, you know, the first thing they should probably do is start calling them by their name. You know, it sounds so silly, but if you're a viewer and somebody's constantly calling you rude or, like, nasty names, then you're probably going to turn it off pretty fast. And I think that's what's happened is that so much of the coverage has been negative that perhaps we need a new narrative. I think there's there's some also segments that have been designed to hurt millennials that would have to kind of go away and just do otters on the street interview from Fox News and Bill O'Reilly. I think this is one really good example of this where he'll go around and he'll try to, to frame interviews with millennials on the street and show like their weaknesses and show how immature or disengaged or unintelligent they are, that has to stop, right? You're never going to make millennials your friends if you're constantly trying to poke fun at them or use them as the butt of a joke. So some of those things, some of those behaviors, they're, they're difficult to change. It's not impossible. It's just we have to start with the basics, start with thinking about how we're talking about them. And as you know, you note in your book, this is the generation that is up and coming, 20 years from now, this generation will hold the, the positions of power in, in Washington, in business, in education, the arts, etc. And uh, what do you see for that? It's, it's often described as a creative, a restless generation. Uh, uh, but then again, you know, some of those may be just labels we've put on people. Yeah, absolutely. They could for sure end up in, you know, all of these positions, at some point, millennials are going to be our newscasters and they're going to be our journalists if they aren't already. And so some of this change is going to come naturally because that's how we tend to evolve our speaking of generations is as soon as they start to become the control culture, the the dominant culture, then all of a sudden we see these more positive narratives start to show up. I think one of the things that's kind of challenging that, and a lot of millennials are feeling this, especially as they graduate college and are looking for jobs, are that the jobs aren't there because we have old, older generations who are working much, much later in life. And as a result, the jobs that would normally be opening up to millennials and therefore giving them some say in these issues like representation, those aren't necessarily coming as easy as they have in the past. doesn't mean that in time it won't actually happen. It's just not happening as quickly as we've seen prior to this. Allison Novak is the author of a new book, Media, Millennials, and Politics, The Coming of Age of the Next Political Generation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. This is the Journalism Channel of the New Books Network. I'm James Cates.